You're listening to TIP. On today's show, I talk with Scott Young. Scott is an expert in self-mastery, career development, and learning, in addition to being an entrepreneur and an author. He is well-known for his Wall Street Journal best-selling book, Ultra Learning, and his experiments, the MIT Challenge, and the Year Without English. But before we dive into today's episode with Scott, I wanted to take a minute to announce the winner of our recent review contest and thank everyone who participated. Everyone who left a review on Apple Podcasts and shared the post across social media, you're really helping the show grow, and I really appreciate that. Without further delay, the winner of the review contest is Robert Geibel. Over the coming weeks, Robert and I will be having a one-on-one call to talk about his portfolio, investment strategies, and really all things investing. Congratulations, Robert. If you'd like to help the show grow too, all I ask is that you leave a review on Apple Podcasts and tell a friend for each episode that provides you value. That's not one friend for the whole podcast. That's one friend for each show that you truly find valuable. Thank you guys for your support and helping the show grow. We really couldn't do it without you. Now let's get into today's episode with Scott Young. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Robert Leonard. And with me today, I have Scott Young. Welcome to the show, Scott. Oh, thank you for having me. Let's start by talking about your background and story. How did you get to where you are today? Yeah. So I've been writing on my blog for, well, about 13 years now. And so it's formed a big chunk of my life where I've been writing about learning and habits and productivity and all sorts of topics like this. But the topic that I wrote about for this book, Ultra Learning, has been with me for about a decade. And it kind of started initially out of being a student. And from being a student, obviously, learning is sort of central to your life. And so I was kind of interested in, you know, how can you get better grades and get better results in your classes without spending as much time studying. And then that way that grew out after I graduated was seeing people who were accomplishing really impressive things with their work, with their hobbies, with skills that they wanted to acquire but often doing it in rather unconventional ways. So I talk about a lot of these stories in the book and these were really inspiring to me. And and I kind of, you know, over the last eight years, I've done a number of these projects where I try to learn difficult skills, whether it's languages or computer science or things like drawing portraits, and uh, try to document those results on my own website so that I can kind of uncover how does it work to learn things and, and how can other people who want to get good at hard skills, how can they do it more effectively themselves? And I know one of those hard skills that you tried to learn, which you mentioned computer science, was through what you call the MIT challenge. So could you talk to us a little bit about that and what really led you to doing that experiment? Yeah. So this was right after I graduated from school. I had uh, studied business. I don't know whether you've ever had this feeling before where you've spent a lot of time doing something and then you have kind of regrets about the decision that you chose to study that thing. And so for me, I had went into business school because I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I wanted to, you know, start a business. I wanted to run a business. I wanted to do those things. And so I figured, you know what? Studying business is the most logical option. And it was only after I'd done a number of years of business school that I realized that actually a lot of business school is how you can be a middle manager in a large company. It's not really about how you can make something that 
will create a company of your own. And so around that time, I was, you know, graduating from school and I was thinking about the other thing that I had thought I was studying, that I'm thinking of studying, which was computer science. And I was thinking, you know what, that probably would have been a better choice because computer science, you know, after all, you understand how computer programs work, software works, how the internet works. And I was working in uh, business, little business ventures online. So that seemed to be far more useful is to really understand how computers work. And so I was thinking at that time about maybe even going back to school. Like I was even looking into like how much would it cost and how long would it take to get like another bachelor computer science. And around this time, I stumbled upon a class that was put by MIT online, but it was just, you know, anyone could take it. It was just, they just uploaded the lectures, they uploaded the assignments, the exams, and it was just kind of do it yourself. Like, you know, if you want the class, here it is. And this was really intriguing to me that, you know, you could kind of get a sort of slice of the MIT experience without going to MIT, without being accepted, without having to go through all those hoops. And so this combined with some of my own interest in like effective studying and productivity, it kind of got the gears turning and thinking, wouldn't it be cool to do a project where, you know, I try to learn what I wanted to get out of this extra degree program, but instead of going back to school, try to do it myself. And so this MIT Challenge evolved into a project where I wanted to learn MIT's computer science undergraduate curriculum, but instead of going to MIT and doing the classes, I was going to use their free resources. And sort of my benchmark for that, because obviously not going to MIT makes things a little bit more complicated, was that my goal was to try to pass the final exams and do the programming projects. And I would say that I did that. So after a 12-month period of time, which was the sort of intensive time period that I allocated this, I I had uh, finished the 33 classes that roughly constituted an MIT undergraduate uh, program in computer science. I think that story is super fascinating, not only just because of its pure nature, but also because it relates to me so much. I went to business school. I have a very similar background to you. I wanted to go into business and I realized that it was setting me up to be a middle manager more or less. And and now, a few years removed from school, I'm like, man, I wish I had gotten a computer science degree because I really wish I knew more about technology and coding. And I really wish I had those skills. And so that's exactly what you went through. So that story really resonated with me. And I find it super interesting. What was the biggest or most surprising thing that you discovered through that process? Well, I think, I think like a lot of people before I went into this project, and I mean, I mean, I still had the idea of doing this project. So I mean, in some ways, I'd already kind of come to this insight a little bit earlier. But I've always sort of had this sense that there are a lot of hard skills, skills like being a programmer or having, you know, deep knowledge of some difficult subject, that really the only way to do that would be to go to school. And I think this is sort of drilled in us from the beginning. And I've talked to many people that you know, they say, well, I'd like to transition to a new career, but like my background is in X. Like how, like, in other words, how could I possibly do this other difficult profession if I didn't have university education? And I mean, some of that is just because of the barriers to entry so that, you know, even if you learned everything there was to learn about medicine, if you don't have a medical degree, obviously you can't practice. But I feel like it's deeper than that. I feel like deeper in our culture, we have this idea that the only way you could really learn that, to really have that knowledge, is to go through that formal process. And so for me, I think the real surprising thing is the insight is that there is no magic to it, (laughs) that you can learn these things that are in these programs on your own. And often, you know, again, for I I did that whole program for less than $2,000. And if I were really, really keen on doing it for free, I probably could have done it for free. It was just spending some of the money to get 
some used textbooks that went with some of these classes. And I mean, computer science, I think, is something that's particularly amenable to that because you don't need access to, you know, crazy equipment or, you know, crazy situations that are very expensive to access without it. But at the same time, I think this is a model for thinking about how you could acquire lots of difficult skills. And so for me, I think that really was a triggering point to rethink how I thought about learning because I think before I'd had this really mindset ingrained by the education system that, yeah, if you want to learn this subject or if you want to be good at this, then you have to go to school. And I feel like going through that experience just really showed me that that's just not the case at all. How can someone listening to the show today do something like what you did with the MIT Challenge? What tools or resources can they use to do something similar so that they can advance their business or even switch careers? Yeah. So as I talk about in the book, there's lots of different projects you can do. So I think it would be a mistake to fixate on exactly how I did that particular project, like to say, okay, well, then the key is that I have to like find the MIT classes for this and do exactly like an MIT degree. I think that is one way of doing it. And I think it's a good way if your goal is to get the kind of knowledge that MIT teaches. So in my case, I was very interested in computer science. Uh, I think there's sometimes a slight distinction between computer science and programming a little bit in the same way that you know, there's a difference between mechanical engineering as there is with like car repair. You know, there's, there's a difference in the sense that like one is a little bit more theoretical and one is a little bit more practical. And so I don't think what I would suggest for people is that, okay, well, if you wanted to learn programming, for instance, you should do exactly what I did. Rather, the reason that I wrote the book and the reason I include so many different examples in the book is that I wanted to show people just how many options there are, how many different ways you could approach learning a skill. So even something very similar to this with computer science, I had one person that I met who did a project where he did it with all hands-on projects. So he didn't even try to benchmark it off of a degree at all. He just said, okay, I'm going to just have these three-month chunks where I really dig deep and do some hands-on projects for you know, artificial intelligence or for engineering or for programming or these kinds of things. And that's also a really valid approach. And so I think my goal here and, and what I think people should start to do is not to think that there's some fixed path that's going to be right for everyone, but just to realize that there's many, many more options that you could consider. And so I hope for this book to kind of give you a way of not only exposing you to a lot of these different projects to kind of get your imagination going, but also give you ideas of what are the sort of fundamental principles of learning so that if you are going to embark on your own project of your own design, how can you make sure you do it as effectively? How can you make sure that you don't spend you know, six months doing completely the wrong thing that won't actually get you to where you want to go in terms of your skills and knowledge. For someone who's hearing this and just has never seen any of those free resources or courses that someone might offer like MIT, and I know there are some other colleges yeah. that offer things like that. Could you give some specific examples so that people could go and look into these resources? Yeah. So generally, I would say is a good starting point is to use MOOCs, which are called a massively open online courseware. So examples would be Coursera. Coursera is a really big one. I think also edX is another one. There's a few others that are floating around there. Coursera tends to be one of the dominant ones. Now, MOOCs are a little different from what I did. So MOOCs are a bit different from open courseware, whereas a MOOC is sort of a course that is specifically designed for sort of a mass online audience. Whereas the open course where I was doing for the MIT challenge, so in that case, it's uh, ocw.mit.edu that you can find these resources. Those are actual sort of pieces of the actual material that MIT students use. So it's recordings from an actual MIT class or the actual assignments they use. And I find that the open course where it tends to be more challenging, obviously, 
It's, you know, aimed at MIT students, so it's, it's difficult intellectually, but it's also somewhat more challenging because often the material's only partly complete. So maybe you'll have assignments for one class, but no solutions for those assignments, so you have to find them somewhere else. Or you maybe don't have lectures, you just have the lecture notes, you should supplement it with a textbook. So I did find doing the MIT challenge, I could piece it together, but it's certainly not as straightforward as it would be using a MOOC, which would be just, you just go in and you roll in the class and it has, you know, great videos and assignments that are perfectly tailored to to what you're interested in. So there are lots and lots of resources for doing these. As I said, like MIT is a, is a big player in the open course for movement, but Yale, Harvard, many other classes, they'll offer lectures, they'll offer assignments, they'll offer tons of material for doing this. So really the the only barrier is just your enthusiasm for learning, not really a barrier of material for for most subjects. Yeah, I think the University of California system has some schools that have Mm -hmm. some open courseware as well. And I'm glad you you mentioned the difference between the OCW MIT resources and then the MOOCs because I'm familiar with the OCW from MIT. I've gone in there and taken Mm -hmm. some courses myself. So I'm glad to hear that different distinction. Now, this isn't necessarily a question about specific skills, but I'm curious to hear your opinion on it. What do you think this means for higher education? Do you think that all of this publicly available resources that are coming out these days, do you think more students should consider learning this way instead of going to college? Well, so I think this is something that's really hard to give a blanket answer for. And the simplest reason for that is just that the credentials involved in the higher education system in many professions are mandatory. So I chose to learn computer science, which is actually one of the more amenable professional paths for self-education. I know many, many self-educated programmers who don't have computer science degrees, and yet they have very lucrative professions as programmers. In contrast, if I wanted to do something slightly different, like the MIT uh, computer science curriculum is a sort of a joint electrical engineering computer science curriculum. If I decided I wanted to be an electrical engineer, well, then it wouldn't work at all. And the reason is simply that if you want to actually be a practicing engineer, you need to have a degree. It's, it's often not, you're not legally allowed to practice as an engineer if you don't have the undergraduate specifications. So it's certainly not the case that this approach to learning will just supersede and replace all higher education. I think that there's definitely going to be situations where you're going to need that credentialing function. And even if we imagine in the future where some of these credentials might sort of loosen up and, and have more things, there's probably still situations where going to college and getting the full experience from university is a good thing. I certainly don't regret having gone to school and having gone to university. But that being said, though, I think my real vision of this is that the idea that we have that, that you know, you spend four years in your 20s studying and then that's all the learning you do for the rest of your life, like that's absurd. You know, you're going to spend your entire life needing to improve your professional skills, needing to be good at your job, needing to be good at things in your professional life. And then also your personal life, you know, a lot of people tell me, you know, they really wanted to study X in university, but they just, they didn't have the ability to do so, you know what I mean? And so the idea that these people should go back to college and and quit their jobs and spend another four years, well, obviously they're not going to do that. And so in my mind, ultra learning and this sort of concept of of kind of lifelong learning is, is something that's going to be with us for our entire lives. And I think it's going to be something that's increasingly important. So the ability to teach yourself hard skills is going to matter just as much when you're 35 and you're in the middle of your career and you want to move to the next level. You know, maybe going back and doing a master's isn't the only way to do that. Maybe you can get the same results by just getting really good at the skill that matters for your profession. And so the way I see it is, again, really about expanding the options, about seeing all the possibilities rather than just kind of narrowly focusing on 
again, the higher education system, because although we do tend to talk about it a lot in popular discourse, certainly higher education is very expensive. And there's some sort of structural problems with that. At the same time, I think that the way I envision this is, you know, ambitious and dedicated learners are really going to strive in the future because there's so many resources to acquire skills in ways that uh, just weren't available 10, 15 years ago. Yeah, that's exactly how I see it as well. I think it's, they're great, absolutely great resources for somebody that really wants to learn a new skill or advance their career, but I don't see it necessarily ever replacing higher education just because like you said, there are so many careers that you do need a degree in order to progress through those careers. And whether that's right or wrong, that's another discussion. Well, I would add you need a degree to get started in those careers. And so this is, you know, I get emails from people who are engineers who they have an engineering degree and they feel stuck, you know. So it's not the case that, you know, well, there's some there's only some careers that this applies for. It applies to everyone. It's just in some situations, it might actually work as a wholesale replacement for a degree. And this was the kind of thing that worked in my particular case. But I think in far more cases, it works as a supplement. It works as something that allows you to gain an edge. And and I think, again, like if we're talking about going back to school when you're in your 30s, well, very often getting a second undergraduate degree, getting a second, you know, completely different specialization maybe isn't what you need to do. Maybe what you need to do is just acquire some skills so you can reinvent your career or or move it forward into something that you really care about. It seems like more people are getting degrees these days. So maybe something like this would give you that edge that you need to kind of stand out from everybody else that has the same degree as you. Absolutely. And you mentioned in your previous points that the word ultra learner. So what exactly does it mean to be an ultra learner? Sure. So the way I'm defining ultra learning is kind of the intersection of self-directed learning. And so self-directed learning I mean, it's kind of a jargony term, but what I mean by it is when it is a project that is sort of designed and initiated and driven by the person who wants to learn, by the learner. And this is in contrast to, you know, the typical way we think about education where some other institution from the outside, it's a teacher, it's a university, it's, they are the one telling you what to do and you just are kind of following along. And so the self-directed learner is not necessarily going to, you know, avoid any formal classes. That's why I prefer self-directed rather than self-education, because self-education often implies, you know, okay, well, you're, you're strictly avoiding any exposure to teachers or schools. Whereas a self-directed learner is, you know, sometimes it makes sense to go to school. Sometimes it makes sense to learn with this resource, but they're viewing it from the lens of, I care about learning. And so I'm going to do that in whatever is the best possible way for me in this situation. And it's being initiated and driven by that self-directed learner. And the other sort of aspect of ultra learning is that the people that I documented were aggressive. They approached learning with an eye for effectiveness of for what is the right way to do this, even if that's sometimes a bit more effortful or a bit more difficult. And so a recurring theme in the book across many of the different principles that I discuss is that successful learning, when you do something and actually acquire real knowledge and skills, is usually more effortful than the kind of status quo approach or the easiest approach we can think of. So a clear example of that is the way most students study, which is they just sort of read over their notes over and over again. I mean, it's a little bit effortful, but it's not that hard. And it turns out it's also not that effective, that doing active recall, doing retrieval practice where you actually close the book and you actually try to quiz yourself and try to recall everything, this turns out to be much better for memory, but it's also more more effortful. And so this idea of ultra learning is that it's this group of people who really actually care about learning. (laughs) They actually care about doing it well, and they care about 
doing it not only so that they are self-directed, so that they're choosing what will work best for them to learn rather than just following someone else's lead, but at the same time, they're doing what really matters for getting results rather than just, you know, it's just sort of a fun leisure activity to fill up time. I think, you know, the expression is edutainment, where you're kind of doing things that are educationally related, but that's not really the goal to learn things. You're just trying to, you know, fill time with kind of fun YouTube videos or or something that, you know, it's sort of mildly stimulating, but you don't really care about results. Whereas the ultra learners I met were people who they really cared about knowing things. They really cared about having skills. And so they were kind of ruthless in trying to optimize that and make that more effective. And so I wanted to single them out as a group of people so that we could see, you know, if you really are to take this to the extreme, what are the lessons that can be learned? Even if maybe you don't want to go quite so far, you can still apply a lot of these insights to the things that you want to learn and get good at. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey guys, about a year and a half ago, my wife and I got married and one of the most stressful parts of our relationship has been trying to join our finances together. We all know that money issues are a leading cause of divorce, but Monarch, the top-rated personal finance app, has built-in collaboration features so that you can invite your partner at no extra cost. Together, you can see all your finances, collaborate on your budget, and get insights on your cash flow and recurring transactions. It's the easiest way to manage your household finances. Unlike other personal finance apps that we tried, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch is obsessed with constantly improving the product, and they release updates every two weeks and allow customers to submit suggestions, vote on requested features, and view the product roadmap. Most importantly, they never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch for myself, my wife and I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners on this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com mi. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash mi for your extended 30-day free trial. Go to monarchmoney.com mi for an extended 30-day free trial. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found on the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate out there, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So, If you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing, 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing member of FINRA-SIPC. 
Funds from this account are automatically deposited into a partner bank where they can earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither Public Investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. All right, back to the show. As more people have college degrees, I mentioned that a few minutes ago, and a lot of skills are becoming commoditized. Do you see the skill of being an ultra learner becoming increasingly important? And do you think it's going to help people avoid being replaced by things like AI and other similar technology? Absolutely. So there is a kind of an overarching trend in the economy, which I document in the book, uh, which the MIT economist David Otter calls skill polarization. And basically what this means is that what has happened in the last couple of decades in the sort of income spread is that it's actually been kind of stretched out at the top, but kind of compressed at the bottom. And so the way that you can kind of imagine this is that a lot of the former sort of middle class jobs, meaning that they were not too demanding, but you know, if you worked hard and you just stuck your nose down and grounded out throughout your whole life, you could have a decent life, that these are the things that are being replaced by technology. These are the things that are being outsourced. You know, we all know about manufacturing jobs going overseas, but now it's also, you know, white collar jobs. It's bookkeeping. It's, you know, low level software programming. It's a A lot of these functions are also being outsourced to lower income countries. And obviously, artificial intelligence, automation, these are things that I am not a big believer that, you know, we're imminently facing a collapse of all jobs and that AI is going to take over everyone's position. Rather, I think it's going to be a continuation of the trend we've already seen. And what the trend we've already seen is, is that as jobs get replaced, as things get automated, we have new jobs and there are new opportunities for work. But the difference is that these new opportunities for work tend to be somewhat more complicated. They require somewhat more advanced skills than were happening before. So, you know, I, I use the example of Apple computing as, a, as, you know, their tagline of, you know, design in California, made in China is like a perfect example of this, that the, you know, functions of management and higher design, these sort of complex, difficult jobs, they've stayed in North America. But a lot of the manufacturing has gone overseas. And this is not just true of Apple products, it's true of many, many companies. And so I think the idea of ultra learning is just recognizing that this is the economic reality we're facing, that we're in an environment where, yes, there are going to be a lot of economic opportunities. It's certainly not the case that, you know, well, there's no jobs anymore. There's lots of jobs, but the jobs are often harder. They're often more difficult. They require technical skills. They require computer skills. They require people skills. They require lots of soft skills and, you know, deep knowledge of the market, all these things can be learned, but they're also not the kind of things that necessarily are going to be covered fully in a university curriculum that you're going to do once when you're, you know, 21, and then you're just going to be set for the rest of your career. And so ultra learning this idea of, okay, I'm going to upgrade my skills, I'm going to transfer my skills to a new industry or a new company, that this is going to be a key component for success. And so whether or not you call it ultra learning, whether or not you call it something else, I think this is going to play an important factor. And so studying people who are really good at learning and have really kind of invested their lives into figuring out how to do it well, I think is going to be a key component to success and and to, you know, having a, a life and career that's meaningful to you. So what misconceptions do people have about learning and how can people hack the way they learn? And so the idea of directness is that we have research that goes back really over a hundred years. And in this research, we know that when people learn things, it tends to be a lot more specific than we tend to expect. So for instance, if you give someone a test and you teach them this very specific concept, 
They often learn just that concept. They don't learn all the generalizations and extensions of that concept. They often learn to apply it only in that classroom. They don't learn to apply it, you know, to their real life in situations where maybe it applies. Or if you teach someone a very specific skill, they, they don't magically get, you know, quite related skills that are related to this. So this is what's been known as the problem of transfer. And really, there's just, again, tons of research showing ways that we fail to transfer things that we learn in situations that seem almost obvious. So, you know, one example of this is there was a study that was done that showed that economic students did not do better on questions of economic reasoning than non-economic students who were matched uh, for similar levels of uh, academic achievement. So this is kind of surprising because you think, well, what's the point of studying economics if it doesn't help you with economic reasoning? And I think this is just related to the idea that for a lot of people, they learn a lot of things in economics classes that mostly helps them with their economics classes. It doesn't transfer that broadly. And so this idea of directness, and this is something that was practiced sort of throughout the ultra learners that I interviewed, is really honing in on what is the context and situation that you're trying to get good at. So if you are trying to learn a language for the purpose of having conversations, pinpointing that early on as that this is the thing that you care about. And the idea is that you should try to do some practice connected to this context very early on. So, but I think even just as a starting point, recognizing that, okay, if my purpose for learning this subject is to apply it to my job in this particular way, that I should be trying to link that in, trying to work that in and applying it very early on. Because often if you learn things that aren't connected, you just oh, you know, I'm going to do a bunch of classes and then hopefully it'll improve me for this later task and I'm not really thinking about what that task is or what that context is, then it often fails. And so directness, sort of this learning by doing, it kind of makes sense. This is something that I think people intuitively accept. But I think the deeper lesson that transfer is a lot harder and that when we learn things, they tend to be quite specific. I think this is something that is not only not been imbibed in our culture, but it actively runs counter to how many people think about education, despite the fact that, again, there's basically a century of research backing this up. It might be because I've been reading more lately, but do you think that that misconception plays out with people that read a lot? You know, I feel a lot of people read, especially with the rise of Audible and audiobooks, mm-hmm. I feel like a lot of people are reading a lot more than they used to. And they're just not really putting that into action. They're not transferring that into the real world, right? They're just finishing that book and then firing up the next book and then firing up the next book and so on and so forth. And they're just kind of working their way through the books without really taking any time to think about what they learned and, you know, never mind, apply it. Do you think that's taking place? Yeah. So I would say that I'm not against reading books. I'm not against learning things, you know, just for the purpose of, you know, just generally knowing more things. So I think the sort of lesson that I would kind of give off is actually more about maybe how we think about higher education or how we think about education, period. Because I, I sort of mentioned at the beginning that sort of my assumption going into the MIT challenges, this is again about eight years ago, was sort of the idea that there's a lot of hard skills that, you know, university is the only way to learn it. And I think the way that I'm thinking now is that university is probably not the best way to learn a lot of skills. And that's kind of surprising given kind of my prior, which was that it was the only way to learn a lot of skills. Now I'm kind of thinking that it's probably inferior for many, many skills. And so the idea that I have is just related to the sense that for a lot of us, you know, okay, well, we want to learn this skill. Okay, so we'll get a book. And we think that by reading the book, by just sort of covering the content, that that's sort of sufficient in many ways to really learn it, that that's what we've done to learn it. And not only are there countless studies showing that we don't actually retain very much from books. So, you know, if you read a whole book, you can often remember maybe the gist 
and a few like highlights. But if you were, you know, actually tested on it, like it was a class, you'd probably fail the test. But then the problem of directness goes even beyond that, because even if you could pass that test, even if you took a full class where you had to study for it and master the material, maybe you couldn't transfer that material to some other situation. And so I think for a lot of the things that we really care about, they are practical skills. They are things like public speaking. They are things like listening. They are things like programming and marketing. And and all these things are, are really gritty, practical skills. And so there's a real sense that where that learning comes from, where you actually get good at those skills is from doing some kind of practice. Now, books and and other kinds of coverage resources where you're kind of covering the information, these things can be really valuable. In fact, they can often save you enormous amounts of time. So I definitely don't suggest that, you know, well, you should just never read a book and only just go out there and do it. And that's how you're going to learn everything. Because often, you know, getting an insight can direct your practice and save you countless hours. But rather the idea that, you know, the opposite vision that, you know, you could essentially avoid doing a lot of practice and nonetheless have useful skills that this is just not borne out by the research. What is the best way for somebody to learn so that they can really internalize that information? Is it, do they have to do like a course style learning or, you know, does it really depend on the person or can a lot of people really learn the valuable information that they need even just from YouTube videos? The way that I view it is that the way people typically think about classes is that like the learning happens in the lecture. So again, I think this is, I'll just sort of back up for a second. I think that a lot of this is just because of our kind of cultural preconceptions about education. And our cultural preconception about education is that the value of of a class is in the sort of the lectures that where the teacher is standing up in front of the blackboard and explaining the concept. And that's where the learning takes place. And then the homework and the tests and all these kinds of things, that that is where you kind of prove that you've learned something in the class. And this is sort of a kind of, you know, one of the things is to teach and the other is to sort of demonstrate knowledge. So the homework and this kind of stuff, this is sort of viewed as a kind of evaluation activity rather than as a sort of real skill building or learning activity. And I think this uh, idea is just, it's actually probably the inverse of this, that the lecture, the these kind of coverage material, maybe a YouTube video, maybe it's a book, maybe something like this. This is to give you some sort of starting points for practice, but it's in the actual practice. It's in the actual doing that much of the learning actually takes place. It's in the preparing for a test that you actually really learn the stuff to pass the test. It's in, you know, if you're learning a language, it's in actually practicing having conversations with people, not the sort of study you do with the textbook at home. Like the practice with the conversation is really where a lot of that learning takes place. And so I think part of this is just that we have the wrong metaphor for learning. The metaphor we have is this classroom style of education, which it's probably suitable for some subjects to some extent, but it's probably not how we are designed to learn. The way that we've been designed to learn is much closer to the sort of apprenticeship model where you spend most of your time doing and occasionally some master comes by and says, okay, don't do it that way. Do it this way. See how I do it. You sort of learning by doing with some sort of access to instruction to guide that learning. And so I think this idea we have of that most learning, when when people think of learning, they think of their time in school and they use that analogy to guide them in their future learning efforts that this actually does people a disservice that the way we should be thinking about learning is more like an apprenticeship more like a you know a process of practice a process of doing things and so i think the more we can shift our kind of internal metaphors we have about learning i think the better we will do i know some of the listeners will hear your story and think it's super inspiring and feel motivated to make a change or even start on a new track of personal development but they ultimately won't end up taking action. So Mm -hmm. what advice do you have 
for those people out there that feel stuck and that they can't overcome their biggest roadblocks? Yeah, so I think this happens a lot. I think that often we have ideas of how we would like to change our lives and projects we'd like to do and goals we'd like to set. And then, you know, we get really excited about them. And then two weeks later, we're sort of back to where we started. And so I think there's two ideas I have about this. So the first idea is to realize that self-efficacy, the ability to set projects of your own design and complete them, this is itself a skill. And it's not, I think it's unfortunate because I think it's often a skill that we're not taught. In some ways, I think that our society actively handicaps the development of this skill because it's sort of expected that someone should be telling you what to do, whether that's your teacher, whether that's your parents, whether that's society, whether that's your boss. Someone should be telling you what to do. And if you have to go out and really think yourself of some project or some effort, then there's a sense that that's weird. There's a sense that that, you know, maybe you're doing the wrong thing, right? And so I've, you know, for me, I felt this often that like, you know, when I've engaged in projects that's kind of gotten that kind of eyebrow raised from other people because it's not, you know, necessarily what everyone else is doing. And so I think this idea that self-efficacy, this idea that, you know, okay, I'm going to start exercising every day of this month, or I'm going to, you know, learn programming, or I'm going to decide to start my own business. These goals that we have and the ability to set them out and achieve them, that this is actually a skill that can be learned. And there's a lot of things that go into that skill. So a lot of it is sort of subtle, kind of psychological, emotional things like, how do you set up your commitment? How do you set up your time? How much scheduling is too much? Why did you get derailed in the past? Like this is, This is actually a pretty complicated topic. I think you you could easily write, you know, a 900 page textbook with all the little nuances of getting this right. And so the thing I would say right now is not that there's some bulletproof cure that allows people to develop this skill, but just if they start thinking of it as a skill, thinking of it as, okay, the reason I'm not able to get a lot of the things I want done in my life is because I don't have this skill of self-efficacy and I can start building it. So I can start with some easy projects. Maybe I'm just going to start with committing to something over this weekend and executing it and then recognizing, okay, well, I tend to succeed on these kinds of projects, but not these ones. So having that introspection of why you might not be succeeding on them and making adjustments, these are all things that can help. The other thing that I think is relevant, and I think is particularly relevant for learning projects like these, where you are doing something, you know, most learning projects are not mandatory. No one's going to go out there and tell you, you have to learn this thing, even if it might make your life a lot better. And so for these kinds of projects, I actually advocate a very different approach than I think most people do. So I think most people, they do a kind of dabbling approach where they just sort of, oh, you know, it would be nice to learn a bit more about this. And then they kind of just get this intention to, well, I'm going to learn painting or I'm going to learn programming or I'm going to learn this. And I would just like to put more time in. But there's no actual plan. There's no actual project. There's no concrete method or strategy. It's just, let's just do this as an activity. And because it's not mandatory, because it's not something that, you know, you're not going to get fired if you don't do it properly. Very often, you know, this only lasts for about a couple of days and then the enthusiasm has gone and then you're off to doing something else. And in your leisure time, you just resort to doing something that's easier and more convenient, watching Netflix, going on Facebook, um, you know, surfing Instagram, that kind of thing. And so for me, what I think the, the real kind of strategy here is to actually create a project to actually design a project to say to yourself, okay, over the next month or over the next three months, I'm going to work on this skill. And these are the resources I'm going to use. And this is the time I'm going to invest. And this is the kind of difficulties I anticipate and how I might overcome those difficulties. And these are the resources I can draw on when, you know, certain problems occur in the project. 
And it doesn't have to be 60 hours a week. It could even just be a couple hours a week, but it is something that you sort of thought about and set out in advance. And indeed, you've spent some time planning and thinking about it before you pull the trigger. So I don't think that this project approach has to be done for literally everything you want to learn. But I think if you want to learn something difficult and you've struggled in the past, then this is probably the next step to go forward. While you talked there, I was thinking back to one of the interviews I did with popular author Gary John Bishop. And it just reminded me of how he talks about keeping the promises to yourself. So self-fulfilling that when you tell yourself you're going to do something and then you don't do it, it just builds and builds and builds. And then you never end up doing anything that you tell yourself you're going to do. And so you need to treat yourself, the promises you tell yourself or the things you tell yourself you want to do, you need to treat those like you would, like you make any promises to anybody else. And ultimately that will compound into massive action that you could take and lead to learning those things that you want to learn. Well, and I think another thing I would add to that is just that a lot of people, and I would include very ambitious and you know otherwise successful people in this categorization, a lot of people lack this kind of self-efficacy skill because it's never been a skill that they've needed. It's never been a skill that they've had to apply, that they've gotten fine in life just kind of doing what they're told or doing what the environment compels them to do. So maybe, you know, like I know people that, you know, they've worked all the way through medical school, for instance, and they did it just because, well, everyone around them was in medical school, their parents were telling them to do it. And yeah, it was a lot of hard work. Doing hard work is not the same thing as self-efficacy. It's not the same thing as like creating a project and designing it and experimenting and manipulating it. That kind of entrepreneurial skill, I think, is, is often lacking with people who have just been able to go through life by doing things this way. And so I think if you struggle with this in the past, I think don't feel bad. I think that's the, the lesson that I would part that, you know, if you have struggled with this, it might be the case that, yeah, you actually haven't needed it for a lot of situations. You've been in situations where your normal kind of strategies and habits are, are sufficient for, for dealing with the kinds of projects you have. And so if you have to learn new ones for a new type of effort or for a new type of project, that's totally fine. And I think most people can acquire that skill if they think about it that way. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey guys, the Range Rover Sport leads by example. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability and combines assertive on-road performance with the signature Range Rover refinement that you'd expect. The third generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet and redefines sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, which offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can also enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate out there, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So 
If you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing, 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing member of FINRA-SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into a partner bank where they can earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high-yield-account. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access, a free flight to a bucket list destination, wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. Nerdwallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. I know many successful people attribute a solid morning routine to their success. Are habits really the key to success? I'll answer that question two ways. I think that habits as a sort of a deep psychological concept are not only important to our success, they are almost all of our behavior is in some sense habitual in the sense that, you know, we are often not really making deliberate decisions when we make you know, almost anything we do is just sort of a kind of a conscious sort of, there's this cue and then there's this response. There's this cue and there's this response. And because self-control and willpower are incredibly limited, when there is a tension between what we would like to do and what kind of our habits dictate, overwhelmingly our habits win. So in the long run, in the sort of big pictures of things, not only are habits important, they're essential. And I think they're unavoidable. But in the other hand, I think that there is a kind of popular sense of habits of like, routines, that it's it's about having some kind of fix. Well, I wake up in the morning and I eat this granola bar and, and then I do this after that. And I think a lot of the actual habits that really make a difference in our life are not at that sort of very obvious level, that they're not at the level of like, what does this person do, you know, at lunchtime or something like that. I think rather the habits are kind of more abstract. So they are still habits. They're still very much a non-conscious kind of behavioral response. But they're like little things like, for instance, okay, let's say you decided that you were going to work on some things today and then uh, something came up and you weren't able to finish them. What do you do right now? And it's sort of that is a kind of abstract problem. It's not really like, what did you do this morning? Because we're obviously dealing with some sort of contingency that you weren't expecting it. But even how you deal with that contingency is probably a habitual response. So if you have the idea that, well, I you know set these goals for the day and I finish them no matter what, that is a type of habit, right? Or every project I start, I finish no matter what. That is a kind of not even just one habit, it's many little mental habits of how you deal with those situations. So for me, I think that um, habits are, again are essential, but I think that maybe the kind of like very obvious manifestations of habits of being very highly structured routines, they're helpful, but I don't think that they're really where the kind of power of habits is. Just in the same way that I think the power of learning is not in being able to do well in classes, but 
being able to have real skills. I think the real power of habits is just sort of harnessing this enormous quantity of kind of unconsciously driven behavior. What is the best piece of advice that you'd give to someone who is looking to learn a new skill, stay relevant, reinvent themselves, or just really adapt to whatever's thrown at them? Yeah. So I think one of the things that I kind of set out in writing this book is not to tell people what skill they ought to learn. And I think this was sort of my hope is is to show people a lot of different projects, a lot of different ideas, because my, my deep down feeling is that everyone has that skill or that subject or that area that they've always wanted to get better at, or they've always wanted to learn in the first place, but they've just never, they've never been able to make it happen. They've never been able to be successful at it. So I've had people tell me, you know what, I was trying to learn programming for a while and I I started and stopped multiple times, but I, I just never was able to get to a point where I could write real programs. Or maybe it was a foreign language. So maybe it was someone who really wanted to learn a language or maybe it's an abstract concept. So maybe it's someone who like, I always really wanted to understand how, you know, sort of the the kind of more complicated forms of investing work. So like how puts and call options and these kinds of things, I I always really wanted to understand how they work, but I just, I could never understand it. I I start reading the Wikipedia page and it's just like, well, it goes over my head. And so my feeling is that everyone has those things that they want to master and they could be a technical subject, it could be a soft skill. And for me, I I wanted to create this guide not to tell people that there's one particular thing that they should do right now to to master it, but that there are a lot of options that they haven't considered. And maybe if they had felt stuck in the past, maybe it wasn't that the problem was them. Maybe the problem wasn't that they can't learn that thing. Maybe the problem was that they just didn't find the right way to go about it. And so I'm hopeful that after reading the book and after seeing all these different examples and seeing all these different plot methods you can apply and, and ideas you can think about, that a lot of people will be willing to give that one thing that they've always wanted to learn a second chance and, and maybe hopefully this time they'll be successful with it. What is a common piece of advice or recommendations that you often hear given by other experts, whether it be in personal development or business or anything along those lines that you hear and it just kind of makes you cringe or you might not think is the best advice or maybe not completely true? And how would you make that good advice? I think when it comes to learning, uh, so I'll speak about the learning area because there I've done more research. And so I have kind of not just this is my opinion, but I've read a lot of the research on it. And so I think there's a lot of, you know, I don't want to say bad advice, but maybe not super helpful advice that floats around. So one of those pieces of advice is a lot of people get really interested in learning styles. So like the idea that there are visual, kinesthetic, auditory learners, it's super popular. It's widely believed. And it's also something that despite quite a bit of research, there's just no evidence for it. And so that's one of those examples where it's kind of a folk belief that a lot of people have. And I've even, you know, interacted with people who that's what they do for a living as they talk about learning styles. And I just kind of, all right, yeah, that's fine. But it's probably not the case. I think there's also probably in my mind, I think there's probably a lot of things that are not so much something that I think is wrong, let's say, but that I just recognize that the person who's advocating that just has a different value system or different strategies for life. If you could go back and talk to yourself from when you were just maybe entering college or really just getting started on your journey, what would be that one thing you would tell yourself or what would you do differently? You know, obviously, I know this is sort of what I feel about learning is that the kind of, if I knew what I knew now, what would I do then? Well, 
a lot of the things that I spent, you know, the last decade doing were kind of learning projects. So if I already knew how to do them, then I wouldn't have had to embark on that. So definitely in getting my business up and running, I made tons of mistakes. I I worked on projects that turned out not to be successful, or I did things that turned not to, you know, that that wasn't the right way to do it. I should have done it another way. And so, you know, needlessly delayed kind of the process of getting to where I am now. So if I had to just restart from scratch today, I don't think it would take nearly as long just because I know a lot of things that I didn't know back then. But at the same time, I think that, you know, those are things that were kind of necessary. Like I, I, there was a process of learning that had to go in that and I had to have those firsthand experiences. So, I mean, I think I had a fairly, you know, I grew up and I, I went to school and I lived in the same place. I hadn't, you know, I hadn't lived in other places in the world. I hadn't traveled a lot. I hadn't met a lot of people. And so I had a kind of narrow experience to draw on. And I think now if I were approaching things, there's things that I believe back then or things that I thought back then that I don't believe now or I don't believe as strongly now. But I think that, you know, again, giving the advice to the younger self, I, I think that, uh, you know, I, I had to go through those experiences to learn the things that I know now. Through all of those experiences that you've had, what, what was the biggest mistake you made? I think one of the mistakes that I made, and again, I would say it's the sort of something that I've shifted on in my own view of things, is that when I was starting out as a sort of writer, as a blogger, and part of this was, I think, just also the kinds of blogs that were popular at that time, I was sort of more kind of keen to prove myself. Like I, I had a, a stronger sense of like, I have to, you know, you know, do things and show things to show that this is why I'm worth listening to. Whereas uh, my feelings a lot are have softened a lot now. And so now I think I'm, I, I don't really take necessarily that same perspective. But at the same time, I'm not sure whether that's necessarily a mistake. It's just sort of a shift in, you know, getting older and how, how you see your own work and how you see the things that you're trying to do. To your point, it, it maybe wasn't a mistake, but what types of things would you maybe recommend somebody that's just getting started tries to avoid? Maybe, maybe they weren't mistakes, but it was if you look back on it, you say, uh, maybe I didn't need to do that. Maybe I could save some time yeah. and get to where I wanted to go much quicker or easier if I didn't do these things. What types of things should somebody avoid? So I think a kind of category of mistakes I think I made when I was younger. And I think, again, it's it's not really possible for me to like transplant myself back in time and, and do this properly. But was that I was often more anxious and obsessed with sort of external manifestations of success. So when I started writing a blog, for instance, I was very obsessed with, okay, well, I have to like justify this activity that I'm spending many hours a week doing. So I have to monetize it right away. And admittedly, I think a lot of those activities that were kind of trying to prove to myself that that was a worthwhile activity, maybe were getting in the way of projects that I really should have been doing to, you know, have better content and have better ideas and, and have better material. And so similarly, I can think of other areas in my life where that kind of need for validation or need to validate what I was doing and that this was confirmed that I was on the right path, that sometimes those were distractions that, uh, you know, so these days, for instance, if I tell people who want to become a writer, I would suggest, you know, before you even think about, you know, trying to monetize it, I would say build an audience, build writing you care about because trying to make, you know, 50 bucks a month or something like that, I mean, it feels nice that like it kind of quells that anxiety a little bit that maybe you're doing something that's not worthwhile. But I think now the way I see it is that, you know, if, if you were successful in that endeavor, if you actually had people reading you and you then monetizing it, I'm sure you could do that later on. And that the sort of real challenge there is, can you produce something that people actually like enough? And so I, I think of that in terms of other sort of ventures and activities too, that, you know, sometimes there is a, a, a need perhaps to like kind of 
prematurely cash in, I guess, prematurely sort of like prove that what you're doing is correct rather than sort of just sticking out with a, a strategy that, that's sound for a longer period of time. Scott, thanks so much for your time. I really think you provided a lot of value for the audience. And I think that you're getting a lot of people to think differently about how they're going to learn and, and really just how to go about that process differently. For those people that want to connect with you further, where can the audience go? Yeah, so you can go to my website, which is at scotthyoung.com. And uh, I have, and over the last 13 years, I have over a thousand free articles there. I have many things on learning, productivity, goal setting, many of the topics that I know uh, people who listen to your podcast are also interested in. And I also have my book, Ultra Learning, which is available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, wherever you get your books. If you're interested in audio version, I know a lot of people like to listen to books these days. Uh, I also narrate the audible version. So if you're not sick of listening to me now, you can listen to me a bit more and, and go through the book. I'll be sure to put links to all of Scott's resources in the show notes. I'll also put links to anything that we talked about throughout the episode. So you guys can go check all that out. Scott, thanks so much for coming on the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Millennial Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.